All right, we're back for the third time. <laughs> David was just telling us about uh, reading the Heller decision. And were you in Hawaii at the time now? Where were you when you heard that decision? Yeah, the, the... I was on the road between South Dakota and oh, that's uh, right. Seattle. And I was in Montana at the time. Uh, and uh, I want to point out that we must be on to something good here because whenever... Yes the tech glitches that force I, you to persevere yes i had the same thought so um i didn't actually read it at first i just heard about it in the news reports and i heard about the the the, the basic holding that we all have a constitutional right uh to uh, possess a handgun for self-defense and i thought well i have a shotgun but i don't have a handgun I made the decision, I'm going to buy a handgun. And then I actually ran into a buddy of mine on the on the road. We were traveling near each other and we texted and we met up on the road for a minute. And he's a West Point grad. And I said, Tom, I, I've decided to, to buy a handgun. And he goes, I just bought one. Wow. And I said, great. His was a styled out West Point commemorative 1911. Um, oh, wow. And... Uh, uh, I'm sure he still has it. That's cool. And I bought a uh, that snub nose uh, 38, uh, 357, actually hammerless, a five shot, nice little uh, handgun. You have a, you have a picture and, of um, it, and you have a picture of it in here. Yep, but it wasn't the first handgun I ever shot. Uh, I was out in South Dakota, and I uh, met. Uh, uh, somebody who became a, a really, that's it, mm -hmm. um, became a, a really great friend of mine, like a brother, and his name's Face. He goes by the name Face, and <laughs> he was a gun guy. And everybody, man, if, if, if they were as lucky as I was to have uh, a gun guy buddy, you know, like Face to show the ins and outs. First, the safety, the rules, the four rules. And let's go down to the dump and you can shoot my 45. And he had a, uh, a custom made 45 that he put together himself, 1911. And that was the first handgun I ever shot. And I thought, wow, that was great. And uh, uh, he, he took many people who had never shot guns before to the range. And that's a very common way to demystify firearms for people is to let them shoot them safely and you know see what it's about um and so i had shot his gun when i was in south dakota uh visiting and uh and then when heller came out i decided oh i'm gonna get uh, my own handgun and i went through the steps and I, and I got it um and then later on in the book you know i do go to hawaii i have to go register it i have to go get fingerprinted for no good reason it's it's pretty intense in hawaii as as you probably know yeah. uh yeah i'm even more intense uh in hawaii in fact they later instituted the uh this thing called uh it's like called a callback or something do you know about this where uh they they if you have a handgun now registered in hawaii they fought, they they send a, a a request to the FBI that if you're ever charged with a crime 
or get convicted of a crime, they want an answer back to Hawaii so they can take your gun away in Hawaii. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. But it only if you're if you're charged, Hawaii. did you say if you're charged? I mean it's probable conviction. I don't know. It but okay. it's, it's a process where they ask to be notified uh wow for other crimes so they can remove your gun rights. Interesting. Uh, it's an enforcement mechanism. But wow. um the arc of the story, you know, I I learned how to use firearms and then uh start to yeah. carry a firearm. And I I'm presented with um with the the with, with the terrible situation one time in South Dakota where I actually have to pull my firearm in a defensive gun use against a you know basically an insane killer. Wow. And uh that guy was a bad dude. You know, I was uh, that on the Indian reservation there? It was. It was on the reservation and yeah, you know, I had that pocket pistol, mm-hmm. I had it in uh in my shorts, you know, I'm not a huge person. I'm like <laughs> five, six and a half, you know, 145 pounds, maybe depending. And, um, you know, this guy after sweat lodge, he, he, he was making friendly small talk and even suggesting, Oh, I should be his lawyer and represent him in some pro bono thing as Indian rights. And, and I, I entertain a lot of these kind of conversations uh, with people, I, I made myself very accessible to people of all walks of life, you know, uh, if they wanted to throw their story at me and maybe I could help or refer them to somebody in the legal profession who might be able to help. And my mistake at that time was not realizing that he was following me out into the dark parking lot. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, wow. I could have, been more aware you know head on a swivel type of thing but i was right I, I, I was lulled into a little uh lack of situational awareness you might say yep and um but we got out and and he kept trying to sell me different things i didn't need or want like uh offered to sell me uh eagle parts and eagle feathers which of course is illegal i don't yeah. want uh offered to sell me a t-shirt i don't want a t-shirt and then he started really encumbering my space, you know, and yeah. I, uh, I turned uh, to him as we were just coming close to my vehicle. And um, <clears throat> I told him, I said, Hey, you're, uh, you're crowding me. You need to give me a little bit more space here. And he wasn't used to being talked to like that. Hmm. And uh, he kept coming in on me and I said, Hey, you know, I need a little more space than you're giving me right now. Uh, and he said something like, I don't care. I don't give a fuck what you want. And I go, well, I don't know why you would talk to somebody like that if you wanted them to be your lawyer. And he said, wow. you're not my fucking lawyer. And he like kind of moved to lunge at me. Wow. And I stepped back. And that's in the instant I was like, well, it's now or never. You know, you. I, I wouldn't recommend getting thrown to the ground in the dark anywhere, but on the Indian reservation, that could be a death sentence. Yeah. And so I pulled my gun and uh, he saw it and he started running because I don't care who you are, what kind of a bad dude you are, how many times you've been to prison, how many people you've killed. Nobody wants to get shot. Okay. 
and he ran. And then I thought, well, I'm still sitting here with my gun in my hand out in the dark in the middle of reservation, uh, about 50 to 100 feet from anybody. I, I don't know. I, I think maybe I should blow off a warning shot. And where I was, it was not illegal to do it. It is illegal in some places. I'm not right. recommending this to people who sure. are in a dense area. What goes up must come down. Okay. Sure. Um, but this is a very sparsely populated area. And I launched a warning shot and I screamed at the top of my lungs, I need help. Boom. And a full load 357 with a little fireball at the end came out. And um, and then I got in my vehicle with my handgun out and the window down and waited for what was next. Started up my vehicle, turned the lights on and prepared for combat. And um, uh, this buddy of mine, just a, who, a very powerful individual, huge, uh, reformed, you know, did 14 years in state pen on a, on a crime, did his time, did his parole, got out, uh, uh, was living there on, on the reservation in a trailer home. He was married into the family that owned the land. He was a friend of mine. And, and he came running out in his slippers and said, you know, what, what's going on? By then, the guy who attacked me had hopped in his truck and was trying to to get out and and my buddy stopped him and said what the hell is going on and of course the guy who attacked me <coughs> told my buddy pointed at me and said that guy is trying to kill me he goes what you're saying that my friend dave who's half your size is trying to kill you i don't think so what's really going on and uh the guy made up some mumbo jumbo and uh, and then my friend told him, he said, you uh, are banned from this property. We'll never see you here again. Hmm. And then as um, he had this little bat in his hands about this big and uh, my buddy whipped that bat just perfect. It was, I'll never forget the sight of it. He whipped that bat and it ricocheted off the bed of the truck, smashed the guy's back window flew up in the air and he caught it in one fluid motion. Like, wow. It was, it was pretty cool. Wow. And then he came over to me and he said, we got to get you out of here. That guy's probably going to go run to somebody's house and he's going to go get a gun. And he's going to come back out. And he's going to come gunning for you. And then we did a high speed caravan at 70 miles an hour on dust roads off the res, which was also kind of harrowing. Yeah. And I, I thought to myself, man, I got to get a higher capacity firearm here. You know, <laughs> I, I shot one of my five. I only have four rounds left. Right. And um, then I went out and I bought a, a Glock 30 with, uh, with a 10 round mag and a uh, fine, fine firearm, by the way, that has a wow. light and a laser on it too. So it's a little more capable that way. Yeah. But, um, that was intense. And I, I was, I was a little bit shook up from that, you know, that was, yeah. uh, that was intense. So I went to a buddy of mine, this isn't in the book, who's a real knowledgeable guy. Um, we do ceremony together. And uh, he, uh, he told me, you know, when I have a problem like that with somebody, I pray for them that they get what they need. I don't know. He goes, I'm not God. 
I don't know what they need, but God knows what they need. And I pray that they get what they need in a good way. Hmm. So they'll stop hurting other people. And that's what right. I pray for them. I don't pray for me. I pray for them. And so I thought that's a good idea. I'm going to yeah. pray. And anytime I, this comes up or I have this image, you know, there's a little bit of post-traumatic stress that comes from uh, interaction like that, you know, getting attacked and all. Um, and I later learned the guy was a straight up killer, a murderer uh, and a rapist, you know, because I had heard he, he when 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 a friend of mine was young, this guy came to her dinner table trying to impress her dad. Her dad was a gang boss. And this guy who attacked me, he brought a buddy of his to the table and cut the dude's throat at their dinner table to make an impression to get into the gang. That's the kind of guy who, that is the guy who attacked me, a straight hmm. up killer. And I'm glad I didn't know anything like that at the time. Uh, you know, you know, it just wasn't for me to know. I was just defending myself. Right. And, um, but I prayed. Every time I came to me that I thought of him or that situation, I prayed he should get what he needs in a good way. And then I later found out he died having sex. Really? So I think that's what he needed. Wow. In a good way. Wow. Yeah. That's uh. so, so somehow you, in your thinking, uh, I'm, I'm remembering something you said about Amherst, your senior thesis. Your senior thesis was on civil rights, I think, right? Is that right? It was the influence of Socratic and Christian thought on civil disobedience. Okay. And so, oh, I civil disobedience. The, okay. I looked at the motivating factors of people who engaged in modern civil disobedience and found their common root in. Uh, either and or combination of uh, the Socratic dialogues of being honest and true to yourself and to uh, not choosing a known evil over an unknown, for example, in the case of Socrates, or um, the original teachings of Jesus as manifested in the four gospels and how if you ask the civil disobedience, the people who, you know, rejected going to their draft boards, didn't go to Canada, but did stand up and express themselves and their conscientious objections, and you ask them why they did what they did and refused to do what their conscience would not allow, they described as their reasons mm. things that could be rooted in in those concepts of Socratic thought or uh, Christian thought. Yeah. So when you went to law school, I know you weren't a civil rights attorney thinking, uh, well, a law student. I don't know how you were as a law student. Were you, were you thinking you wanted to do business law in law school or did you originally <laughs> go for more idealistic reasons of civil rights being a civil rights hero you wanted to be um what's that guy's name on to kill a mockingbird the the not gregory peck but the guy in the story clarence um, dara no no not him the the uh gem's father i forget his name anyway but uh yeah the, the hero did you want to be the hero attorney 
like civil rights? Initially, attorneys? initially, I wanted to do litigation that way, and and then I ran Attica, into Atticus Finch. I think his Atticus name is Finch. Atticus Finch. Okay, sorry. You know, I, I ran into um, civil procedure, like uh, it's it's the first year course you have to take all year, and and then evidence. And I just wasn't vibing it. And I was I yeah. confided one day in a friend of mine. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do here. I I wanted to be a litigator and go to court and stuff, but I'm just not really getting this whole civil disobedience. I'm sorry, this whole civil procedure and, and this whole evidence thing. And he turned to me, he goes, dude, go corporate. Everybody's going corporate, man. <laughs> And the, I don't even know what that is. What do corporate lawyers do? And he goes, I don't know, contracts, corporations, stuff like that. I'll check it out. And then I started taking some business law courses and corporate and tax and different things. And I found I had some natural interest and ability in it. And I shifted over and never looked back. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that's my aptitude is uh is business and corporate well i was okay that's that's helpful i i i was particularly taken by the uh the change in you that see just kind of wondering where to peg it if there is a place and maybe maybe we don't know or maybe it's not important but it's just the interesting thing of when in your kind of in your deep background if there is such a thing um that helped you make the switch that you had that other people didn't have of starting to think in terms of there's something i can do to be my own first responder there's there's uh, you don't you don't have to just sit around and be a victim um in other words and I, and what i love about the the book is there's this epilogue there's a chapter called do something when you hear that a lot, do something. And you've got a nice little turn of phrase here. Uh, let's see if I can find it. You say, you say, sadly, this is on page 51. Sadly, there is such a thing as evil in the world. And then you mentioned Katrina. It's interesting. Uh, and I don't know if people remember, but in Hurricane Katrina, the police went around to some of these really vulnerable people and were collecting firearms from them, making them even more vulnerable. And that, that's a particularly heinous thing. And you, you say uh, the notion that it should be illegal to loan a rifle to a neighbor during times of natural disaster is contrary to the fundamental human right to live and survive. And, and you, then you say, um, of course, no one wants to get shot. You say it's, it's the great equalizer in terms of uh, having a gun. It's a great equalizer for the simple reason that no one wants to get shot. This is how an elderly person in a wheelchair can defend against a large assailant. That is why a vast majority of defensive gun uses only involve brandishing. 
that is displaying the firearm and not the discharge of the weapon, which is, and then you, you connect it to due process with this, just the threat for uh, red flag laws. And this is a really powerful part right here, page 53. Coming to terms with do something, quote unquote, do something positive that does not undermine the rights of others is challenging. That is, I, I don't know why that stood out to me, but it's it's the do something mentality that doesn't go the extra step and say, well, hold on, am I harming people by taking away their rights? And you're saying, no, no, do something positive that does not undermine the rights of others. And that seems to be the link here. And then, I, I mean, I'm just dropping these gems here on people. No pun intended as I look at this picture of a bomber here. But you have this on page 54, you have this illustration of the survivorship bias. Now that is very interesting. Can you, can you walk us through the survivorship uh, bias? There's the picture of the bomber with all those bullet holes in it. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's something that came up really interesting. I was doing some reading and just as Chuck and I were putting together the final part, I said, Chuck, can we include this? Because I think this is really cool that all these bombers would go fly over Europe to go on bombing missions in World War II. And some of them would get really shot to pieces, right? Yeah. And well, they all got shot to pieces. It was uh, terrible. If you, if you see the uh, incredible documentary footage about, I think it was the eighth air force and the, and the, and the brunt that they took, you know, these heroes going up every day into the incredible flack. But a lot of these bombers, despite being shot to pieces, made it back. And at first they looked at this and they said, uh, you know, how do we interpret this? Where should we put the armor, you know, to fortify these planes? Mm -hmm. And yeah. Very, this is very interesting up, very interesting yeah right and mathematician came up with the concept and said hey we don't have to put armor on the places that got all shot up uh and those planes made it back because these planes can fly with bullet holes in all those places we need to look at the other places right and so if you think about it and it, it's a little bit of a mental uh leap right to apply yeah. it to to guns and gun control but you know the survivorship bias when you look at mass shootings the question that's not being asked similarly is what about all the places where the shootings didn't happen right why is it that they didn't happen there were there a lot of guns there mm -hmm. you know were there schools that were hardened do they have armed school resource officers? Do they have armed, uh, uh, you know, a, a high population of armed citizens with concealed carry? To go back to our earlier point, if somebody had been there, 
they could have taken the gunman out. So, uh, you know, it just kind of helped focus on that, that incomplete story that's part of that narrative. And, um, and then when you look at the, the do something part, you know, I, I went back and I looked at that a little bit before our, our interview. I, you know, I, I'm still very happy with the writing and I still believe 100% what I wrote in there that there are some things you can do. And, and you know, if you yeah. don't feel like you're a person who can be trusted with a firearm, okay, good on you for knowing yourself, right? Go get a first aid kit. Learn how to stop a bleed. Do you know right. how to apply a tourniquet? Do you know right. how to save somebody's life? Or are you just going to sit home and whine? Yeah. You know, is my perspective. Like, uh, you know, there's so much that can be done to save human life, whether it's your own, your family or others. And another point I, I make in the book, and yeah, I yeah. want to reiterate here, you know, and I listened to some of your other podcasts. I want to tip my hat to, uh, to uh, MacGyver, who came on, right? And uh, is the Harley riding gun guy oh yeah yeah right maverick and yeah and he made the point he would he would rush in i'd like to think that if he were there that day he would have rushed in toward the gunfire but that's not anybody's duty okay unless you're a member a trained law enforcement member even then the courts have ruled you have no duty okay right but if you are a trained member of law enforcement perhaps you do have a duty to not stand outside the school to go in and take care of things, you know? Yeah. But if you're just Jane or John Q public and you're armed, your, your duty is to get home to your family. Your right. duty is to get through that danger shelter. You know, I'm not saying leave people behind, but shelter who you can and get to safety. That's, you know, you could go above and beyond. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, maybe like, uh, you know, in my honors thesis, I talked about supererogatory action where you have a love of humanity that's greater than your love of your own self. You're willing to put your life on the line for others, like soldiers and cops and firemen and first responders and these great men and women that are in our society that have made a conscious choice to do those things. You know, mm -hmm. that's not everybody's cup of tea, right? But if that is your cup of tea, you you know be empowered to go do those things and not be in fear of of legal prosecution you know is my is my suggestion right. um that's right and and so you know i think that a lot of people who are unfamiliar with guns uh are just that i think some of those people who are really terrified like have phobias of guns and who also tend to say the kind of things on Twitter that are, you know, insane. They mm. know they can't be trusted with guns because uh, a lot of them are off. That's very insightful. <laughs> and they don't want others insightful. to have guns because they're right. like, well, if I can't trust myself with a yes. gun, I don't want that they, person to be they trusted. They assume that gun. they can't, you can't trust yourself and that they can't trust you. <laughs> course my individual rights don't really depend on whether someone else can trust me right i mean it's it's not like i i need permission to go to church on sunday <laughs> or something well it's, i guess it depends if we're in COVID or not maybe you do. well uh, yeah there you go i guess i walked right into that one but you that's don't true. but they make you believe you might anyway that's yeah, a yeah, yeah, discussion yeah. but it's related 
it is interesting. Yeah. That, that link in people's minds, I think it's, um, now you have this very powerful sentence here on page 55 at the bottom. You say each human has the innate right to prevent their own murder. And man, that seems like the, to quote one of Grand Green's, Graham Greene's uh, titles, the heart of the matter. Uh, each human has the innate right to, to prevent their own murder and to prevent serious injury being done to them and their families. And then your dialogical, do you agree? There's the Socratic uh, influence there. Um, you know, you're very, you're not dogmatic in this book. You're, you're very forceful, but you're, you're inviting a dialogue and you're asking people to come to terms with this. I mean, it seems like, how could you disagree with that? Is it true that the police have no legal duty to, to be a bodyguard to any individual person? Oh, Is yeah, you can look up. There's cases that say there's no duty for the police to intervene. There's Supreme Court cases that talk about that. I'm not an expert in this field, yeah. so I don't have the cases to cite. I don't have them off the top of my head either, but Chuck I know would about know. them. Yeah. yeah, Chuck and, would know. And then, yeah, I, I think a lot of people don't know that. I think a lot of people, uh, when they're in that kind of traumatic state, the it's not fight or flight, it's... Uh, at the time, it's like freeze or dorsal vagal shutdown freeze, which is a combination of fight or flight and and dorsal vagal. It's like in the middle. It's immobilization. And then and then it's a fight or flight kind of thing for the legislative action. Do something, you know, and you're fighting, you know, to uh, push through these insane plethora of gun control stuff. Doesn't matter what, what it is, whether it's conceal carry expanding sensitive locations like they just tried to do in California to basically include all of California as a sensitive place um, to it could be uh, magazine capacity. Uh, somehow the 11th round is all of a sudden dangerous. <laughs> um, it, it could be uh, registration and you talk about registration attempts which sent a chill through my spine when I read that. Um, oh yeah. The background check issue. Yeah. Yeah. The background it sounds, it sounds nice at first. It's like, okay, I know it's a federal law that felons can't have a firearm, which by the way, that's an interesting topic. I'd like to, have you read um, Amy Comey Barrett's decision on that when she was on the fifth circuit, I believe it was, or the seventh. I forget which one it was. I haven't. She wrote a dissent on felons in possession. And uh, I was immediately a fan after I read that because she she basically applied the Heller test to felon in possession laws. It was a nonviolent felon in that case. It was called Cantor versus Barr, the case. Um, Barr was the attorney general at the time and like a, a white collar crime. Yeah. Something? Yeah. Yeah. It was a Medicaid fraud and it was, you know, I think it was over a decade prior. Uh, it was a serious crime. I mean, I don't want to, you know, he pilfered hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, it was, it was bad. He used the mail. It was fraud. And, um, but he wasn't violent. And, and she made this distinction between, 
the kind of crime he was guilty of um, and was a long time ago. He hadn't had any problems since. And the he's not, he's not in prison. I mean, he hasn't been, he's not on probation, you know? So, so it's not like he, he's disarmed because he's in prison. I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's, he's experiencing this civil death as she called it at, walking around, otherwise a free, free person. I mean, he's got all sorts of other rights. You know, he, he can have an attorney, he can have a jury trial. He can have a right to confront witnesses against himself. He can, he can have due process. Those rights aren't taken away from him. He can go to church. Um, I mean, I have it, this a view on it that's, you know, it, 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 I'm not a uh, Second Amendment lawyer, yeah. but I have a view on it that's perhaps a little controversial, and that is, you know, the right to keep and bear arms comes from God. I believe in God. I've had certain experiences in my life that make it so I, I can't not believe in God and know that there is a God that's all powerful, compassionate, is rooting for us to succeed and to be happy. And, um, you know, in my view, and I explained this once to a guy, a buddy of mine who was a felon, that, that guy, he was in state prison for 14 years. And, um, and he goes, well, I, I just don't understand. I did my time and, I'm a different person now. And why is it I lose my right to defend myself with a gun? Yeah. And I go, well, this is going to sound lawyerly, but quite honestly, I don't think you lost your right to keep and bear arms because it comes from God. It can't be taken away. You just lost your right to not be at risk of going to prison again for Mm. exercising your God-given right to keep and bear arms. It's a limitation of the second amendment, which is a limitation on the government from restricting a natural right. That's not actually a loss of your natural right. If it's a right, right. you didn't lose it. Yeah. It's just, we live in a society that's made respected. a bunch of yeah. decisions and you came out on the wrong end of the calculation yeah. because of the class of activity that you got involved in and how it's treated and judged in our society and in our law right but but if somebody's bearing down on you you don't have to just take the bullet you didn't lose your right to be alive that wasn't for the government to take away in my view yeah right suppose we could talk about the death penalty or something else but I'm, i'm referring to the you get this right to keep and bear arms to defend your own life that God gave you. Right, right. And uh, nobody can say you lose that innate natural right. Yeah. The problem is there's some awful, awful circumstances and, and yeah. consequences that the legal system can put on you for daring to exercise your natural right yeah. in a way that society is deemed uh unlawful right yeah and i think uh that was that was what i i got from amy comey barrett's dissent there in Cantor versus Barr, which is that she said uh well she actually would change that she would say 
they, the legal system um, can. I mean, there is a federal law, you know, that that can punish them for having a firearm quite severely, uh, and just to be prepared to defend himself. But she she would say that it's not that's not the way it should be, at least for non-violent felons like he was. It's interesting thing to ponder uh, how, you know, maybe we should talk about the registration issue because the background check really is dependent on the felon issue and the, you know, basically taking a class of people and saying you're excluded from the, the, the right to defend yourself with a firearm. In other words, the, the, the powerful sentence I just read on page bottom page 55, each human has an innate right to prevent their own murder. Um, there is a federal law that infringes on that for some people like felons who are out of prison and rehabilitated otherwise. Um, but the background check really requirement kind of hinges on that whole scheme. And you were worried in the book about background checks because they would lead at least universal background checks, I think is the way you put it, because it would lead to a, a national gun registry. And we had a guy on the on the podcast. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Stephen Hallbrook. And he's a, an attorney. He's also got a Ph.D. He won Prince versus United States before the Supreme Court, and he wrote a book called um, Gun Control in the Third Reich, and we had him on to talk about that book. And gun registration was a huge part of that book. The, the yeah. pre-Nazi German government had required a registration scheme. Um, not unlike you see uh, very popular in some circles now people want to do well you know the history right i mean yeah. the 1968 gun control act was based on that german law i didn't know that if you do the research and you look I up some that. of the writings that uh, emanated from um, jews for the preservation of firearm ownership jp uh, j uh, j p f o uh uh, the guy who was the lead drafter of the 1968 Gun Control Act was involved in the Nuremberg trials and so had a copy of that German gun control law translated to English and it became the basis of the 1968 Gun Control Act. So there, that's the, not like conspiracy theory stuff. You can trace the lineage. And the, the, the Jews for the preservation of firearm ownership, that group was not on board with the 1968 law, right? I think if you research that group, by the way, they, they, they have some really great um, okay. uh, promotional items and slogans like, nothing says never again like an armed Jew. David, yeah. your last name is Frankel. It is. And I wanted to ask you, do you have Jewish heritage? I do. I have an uncle who went to a concentration camp. Mm. And so I'm not into gun registration. 
yeah, at all. I, can I have done it a couple of times yeah. in very limited circumstances. When I was in Hawaii, I was willing mm-hmm. to register the two guns I brought to Hawaii to be in compliance with Hawaii law. Mm-hmm. And there's a separate class of guns that are registered under the National Firearms Act of 1934. And machine guns, by their nature, are dangerous and unusual weapons. Okay. I'll acknowledge that. Um, sure. If you ever have shot one, you can perceive why they would be dangerous and unusual. Um, and, um, you know, in, in the free states, uh, <laughs> you're able to get a machine gun if you want one. By the way, in listening to a couple of your podcasts, there's a couple of commentators who have somewhat misdescribed the situation. You know, in 1986, when Reagan closed the list, it meant that private ownership of newly purchased machine guns were prohibited. But there are 300,000 machine guns that are freely transferable among private citizens. And if you can pass a background check for a handgun and you live in a free state and you're willing to go through the process and submit your fingerprints and picture and pay $200, you can get a tax stamp and you can own a machine gun. Not a problem. In fact, it's great. It happens to be class three gun guys are the, the highest echelon of gun guys in a way. Everybody's been background checked by the ATF. Right. It gives you a comfort level. Everybody's legit. Um, gotcha. But are these dangerous guns? Yeah, you can have an uh, op- open bolt submachine gun. And if it falls on the ground, it can keep firing. Yeah. So you got to be careful with those things. Um, yeah. You know, should those be registered? Probably, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Am I against the registration of them? Not in the same way. They're, right. They're, it's just not an issue for that many people. Yeah. Although I will say there's only one recorded crime ever committed with an MFA registered weapon, and it was a police officer who shot his wife with a Tommy gun. So oh, wow. other than that, you have 300,000 machine guns lawfully held by private citizens and there's not one crime committed with any of them. Just think about that for a second, especially those people who think that they should be scared of other people being armed. You know, if there was something to be scared of, you'd know about it. Right. Right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. About I, the NFA. I, yeah, I, I think I, did, I didn't great. know that all of that background. I didn't know it was that many. That's for sure. There's a way to find out which ones are for sale. I bet the, the price is through the roof because yeah, it's such a limited market. Machine gun, machine gun prices dot com, I think. Yeah. And you can see the, the market rate for different guns. Wow. But uh, it's very so the, the market. The market rate would tank. If for some reason that list was reopened uh, later, you know it's it's funny, but I wasn't old enough when Reagan closed the list. Okay, I missed it by about eleven days. Uh, oh, wow. But if I had been twenty-one, a few months earlier, and if I had been savvy to this, the smartest thing I could have done was would have been to uh, buy a bunch of uh, full auto Sears, which you are like five to ten dollar pieces of metal right put a serial number on them register them 
with the federal government because right after the list closed, that $10 piece of metal is worth $20,000. Wow. Yeah, because you can drop wow. it into any AR and it makes the AR full auto. Ah. Now there's another thing. Interesting. You can't do this in California, but let's say a non-Californian who lives in a free state wants a brand new machine gun. You're allowed to have one. You just have to have it as a dealer sample. And in order to do that, you have to become what's called an SOT, a special occupational taxpayer, which means you, you, you pay a couple thousand dollars and you jump through some hoops and you become a class three FFL, a class three dealer, right? And if you're a class three dealer, uh, you're, you're, you're allowed to have at any one time a brand new machine gun as a dealer sample. So these guns are out there and in places like South Dakota, Wyoming, Kentucky, people enjoy shooting machine guns. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it's, it's enjoyable. They probably enjoyed it more before ammo prices went through the roof. <laughs> there is that. Yeah, it's like, uh, that. every, every magazine is like, uh, you know, it's like a whole meal at McDonald's. <laughs> it's actually you know, even more than uh, that. The first time you shoot a machine gun, you have a right to keep your finger on the trigger and just see that beautiful stream of brass, like a ribbon, fly out the side. And it takes about two seconds, and you're like, wow, I, I, that was, uh, you know, 20, 30 rounds. Basically, that was 40 bucks. Yeah. Uh, uh, right. I think I'll get more precise. And then among machine gun people, the trick is to squeeze off ones and twos with accuracy yeah and stuff like that and, um, do, do, are there any 22 full machine guns out oh, yeah. there are oh, yeah. there no oh, that'd be fun because you don't you know it's a lot less ammo i mean for per, per round oh, the best cool. is when you if some like a buddy of mine has a, a registered uh and they're called registered transferable meaning they were in private hands in mm -hmm. may of 1986 such that they can be transferred to authorized people with ATF prior approval. And mm -hmm. so he got one that his dad bought. He, he's in South Dakota uh, and it's a modified full auto AR. And so he can put a 22 on the top of it if he wants. He can, oh. he can, he can fire five, five, six out of it if he wants. And uh, um, anyway, wow. well, I sidetracked. Cool. It's not really about my book, but there is a sure. gun culture that Californians are missing out on. Yeah, no kidding. I'm reminded of it all the time. <laughs> well, it wasn't meant to salt salt in your in your scratch, you know. No, um, no, it's it's great to know about it. I'm glad that I'm glad it's still there in in America, and I I want to. It's my goal to preserve it. As far as gun culture goes, I think you mentioned gun culture. Um, do you think that gun culture is healthy and what do you mean by gun culture is it do, uh do you mean training kids and this stuff because seems like people are trained young grow up and they they're not idiots well <laughs> if, if, if you ask any of my kids I'll, I'll spot i'll spot test them the other day uh my one of my kids was sitting on a chair watching the cartoon and i said what do you do if you ever see a gun and right away he says uh 
don't touch it. Uh, run and get an adult. And, you know, you can spot test them. And you if you say what, because they they could be in a situation where some other family has a gun around and the other kids haven't been told that. And of course, what are you going to yeah, do soon right. as, oh, look at my uncle's here and he's got a gun. Look at this. It would be my kid who says, hey, don't touch that and run out of the room and go get an adult right away. Like my kid might save those other kids. So there's that aspect. Um, I took the advice of my buddy Face, who I mentioned earlier, he he had raised the kids with guns. And he said, the first thing you want to do, and I did all this, is uh, for one, you take them to the gun range as early as you can, like when they're two years old. You don't let them shoot the gun, but you show them the gun and you let them with earphones and from a safe distance see what it looks like when you shoot the gun because it makes a big boom and a fireball comes out of the front of it. And right away, they don't want it. They don't want to touch that. That's a scary thing. Mm. So let them know what power is in that item without putting the item in their hands. The other Mm. thing is if they know you carry a gun, they see it all the time. Right. 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 So, you know, I would tell them when they were young, uh, if you ever want to see daddy's gun, you just have to ask daddy. Well, that used to happen. Daddy, can I see your gun? Well, never with the magazine, never loaded, right? So I unload it, I clear it, I verify it. And then I say, here, sure, you can, you can hold it. I've got, the, I've got the bullets. I've got the magazine. Well, you know what happens? They get bored in about 10 seconds. And they're like, here, right? Oh, can I see the other part? Well, sure, I'll trade you here. That's interesting. It only comes up a few times because it's not an attractive nuisance at that point. It's just like a hammer, you know? Yeah. You see it the first time. Why would he want to ask for it? Right. There's no mystery. He doesn't have to sneak in and go try to find it because all he knows, he just can touch it anytime he asks for it. That's genius. You know? And that 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 understands child psychology so well. It's essential. I recommend this to parents that have children at gun owner parents, you know. And and finally, you do take them to the range when you can. You do start them out on a little cricket 22 and and get them to enjoy what it's like to hit the target. And it's also a very satisfying time, you know, as a parent, you're wrapping your arms around your child. They got their earphones on, their glasses. It's already a big deal because you've come to the shooting range. You know, all this safety stuff is going on. They finally get their chance. They pop and they hear the ping and they, they smile. You know, they're happy. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was cool, dad. You yeah. know, and yeah. have those times. And then later on, guns come up. They'll they'll think back and they'll be like, no, I know a little about this. Yeah. When, what was it like growing up in Long Island for you? Did it, uh, did you have any of that gun culture? Did you know people with guns? I, I knew I had relatives who had hunting guns on their walls, uh, and in the living room, but I, I wasn't ever asked to touch them or look, do anything more than look at them, you know, mm-hmm. like 
bolt action rifles and, and lever action rifles. When I grew up in New York, uh, they didn't have the same, other than the absurd laws on carrying pistols and stuff, they, they had, you know, pretty um, non-insane laws concerning having a hunting rifle or taking, going hunting and sharing rifles and things like that when I was younger. Uh, but I didn't experience hardly any of it. I never got to shoot a gun till I was an adult. Um, and uh, were you curious about uh, it when you were a kid? Did I like was I curious? You, yeah, when you saw those rifles, were you curious? Did you want to? Well, sure, I was. Did curious. you want to hold it? Yeah, but yeah. I was never invited to. Right. And I suppose if I had ever been left alone with with them, I might have picked them up off the wall and see what they were like but i right I didn't so do you do you feel comfortable sharing the town that you grew up in in long island i don't area? mind uh, so, it was a place called massapequa uh okay. birthplace to the the likes of the baldwin family the baldwin brothers i know actors, yeah yeah and uh, yeah, yeah, sure Jer and, jerry uh, seinfeld's from there jerry seinfeld and, and yeah. joey buttafuoco is uh, <laughs> those three <laughs> names <clears throat> you know link sure yeah so you had a jerry seinfeld kind of a area there background yeah it's interesting so it's not the city it's different i don't i'm having a hard time visualizing exactly what it's like there is it it's like a suburb and is are there any rural areas that are close by mm, not close by it was more or less like classic suburban uh you know um hot hot summers cold winters normal yeah. seasons okay yeah seasonal you know it was a fine place to grow up so it's just basically classical america kind of yeah yeah were you attracted by the city did you did you always look over and go yeah i want to go to law school i want to was there a, a kind of a vortex attracting you uh, I I went to NYU Law because it was the best law school I got into. Okay. Uh, and uh, I was lucky uh, to get in there uh, just because it was so competitive, especially uh, because I went to, I applied to school, went to school during the time of affirmative action uh, where, uh, you know, if you were not a minority Right. You had to do that much better to get into a school. I'm glad you explained that because I knew what you were talking about, but someone else out probably don't know what they're reading between the lines about what you're talking about. Well, and it's just that uh, harder. It was harder for you to get into law school because you had competition that was kind of artif artificial. There was a thing that they, and now it's from what I understand, it's. Uh, much more difficult because of the whole wokeness thing. But wow. uh, back then, there was a, there was a percentage. So, for example, uh, they would reserve a certain percentage of the class for people who were not uh, right. white, middle class uh, type of people. And um, in other uh, words, it, it wasn't based on merit for that group. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. In other words, OK. Uh, you know, for example, if, if they said we're going to admit 20 percent of people from a certain background, uh, then you still have to be pretty darn smart 
to get into these schools, but somebody with grades lower than mine would get a spot before I got a spot. So I needed my grades to be much higher, more consistent, to have a chance of getting into the other non-reserved portion of this class. So when you went to law school in New York City, this is pre-Giuliani, right? Right. Okay. Was it dangerous? Did you feel like you were? Oh, yeah. It was way dangerous. In fact, one of my law school buddies was riding his bike uh, outside of where he, quote, should have been. Uh, he was over by Alphabet City. And a gang of kids attacked him with chains and beat the heck out of him, took his bike, and put him in the hospital. Um, there were a lot of scaffolds there at the time. Uh, it was kind of like the Dink, David Dinkins phase of New York City. You would, you would hold your breath when you were, you'd have to walk under uh, in a dark alley of scaffolding, you know, along a whole city block. And, and you weren't 100% sure how you were going to come out the other side um it was uh sounds horrible you know it was sketchy and uh you know there was a lot of boiling violence i haven't been to new york in a long time but it, on a, everybody took the subway unless you were very very wealthy you know everybody mixed it up on the subway and there were some explosive personalities on on the subway um yeah so anyway, there's a there's a show called Blue Bloods, and the very first episode of that whole show involves a concealed carry guy, a guy that's concealed carrying, not without a license, on the subway. And the punishment that Tom Selleck, I don't know if you know the show, but Tom Selleck, who's a member of the NRA, by the way, Tom Selleck uh, in real life, I mean, not on the show, maybe on the show, I don't know, but but it's it's uh, his name is Reagan on the show. And I felt disappointed by the by the episode because they punish him and he's just trying to defend his I and mean, he, he was purely defensive because um, he felt in danger and he was in danger and he used the firearm in self-defense Um and it makes me think of the Bruin decision that just came out. I don't know if you had a chance to read that, but uh, I read most of it. Okay. I haven't finished it. Well, it involves New York. It involves New York City. <laughs> and uh, I really feel for people in New York City. I, I just, I don't know. Can Do you have any insight on why people are so crazy there as far as like defending yourself? Why does it take the Supreme Court to basically say, to new york city you can't just do whatever you want with taking people's rights away to defend themselves do you have any insights on i mean i'm uh, you know it's been so long since i lived there or yeah. even been there um haven't been there in almost 10 years i don't think i'll ever go back there again wow. uh uh especially in light of what they did to the people during COVID and, you know, introducing VAX passports and, uh, and the way that they're treating people. Last time I was there, it was a surveillance state. There were a lot of cameras, you know, oh, everywhere. Not um, good. Not good. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, 
That's creepy. Uh, I do echo what what Chuck says about the blue resistance, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, still happening. It's happening in New York too. Well, I know. Did you just see that uh, the mayor of New York is adding to the requirement for concealed carry applicants to give four personal references, and they're going to send police to knock on those doors and ask, "Oh, what do you think about this person having a gun?" You know. Um, and, and so any, any excuse to, you know, this goes back to my comment about find a way to do something that doesn't infringe other people's rights. Yeah. But there's a category of people, sadly, who they don't care about anybody's rights. They care about raw power and yeah. control of others. And it's, uh, make me feel know, better. I feel, I feel afraid. Make me feel better. Yeah. That's that kind of thing. And you're right. The, the COVID connection was totally accurate because that's how that whole thing went down. It's all about make me feel better. Yeah. And, 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 you know, New York used to have, you know, when, when I lived there, there, there were, there were some characteristics that made it a really awesome place to be, even though there was some element of, of crime uh, there were uh, incredible restaurants, right. Bars, mm. uh, music, you know, go down Bleecker Street and see some of the greatest uh, independent musicians and musicians pre-signing, like, you know, that, that you'd ever want to see. Jazz, uh, blues, really, you know, uh, New York had this attraction to it that uh, it had a level of excellence to it, had a, uh, a level of honesty to it. I used to say that, you know, if there were, if there was a, uh, an incident involving, uh, you know, uh, a road incident or something in New York, you could pull the immediate people around and you could find out like who was in the right and who was in the wrong pretty immediately. Like people would just call it like they see it just based on like, you know, just the facts, man, kind of a thing. And that got withered away, you know, and right. I'm not sure all of why, but I, I definitely perceive it right now. Uh, through the actions of the officials who run it and the way that they've taken advantage of uh, the regulatory state uh, to, um, for yeah. example, uh, deprive people of their livelihoods if they won't get the injection uh, and to take positions where uh, they really are using brute force of law to impose their will on other human beings that's right. and um yeah. and that's wrong in my yeah, view i'll I just agree. make a moral judgment that that's wrong and uh and you know so don't live there if you don't like it <laughs> yeah. I, I you know move new york, new york has a lot anyway there's too many people who live there it's too loud you can't see the stars at night okay Think about this. And I, I know I'm going on a little tangent. No, but no, I love it. That's York, what makes it great. And Washington, D.C., you look up at the stars at night and there's so much ambient city light that you are lucky if you see one or two stars. OK, mm -hmm. try going to South Dakota or Wyoming and look at the Milky Way wow. and tell me that the quality of life for a group of people that never receive starlight is anywhere close to the group of people who do because wow. you can't you know and and wow. so uh you know we have a big beautiful country wow and yeah yeah um there's no reason to stick yourself in you know 
the place that's going to become Escape from New York. In, you, know, you know, ironically, so. the the overreaction to the public uh, health panic, and I call it, I don't call it a public health crisis. I call it a public health panic because I think the I'm with you on the government overreach on that uh, has actually caused people to think that they don't have to be there. They don't have to be there. They can, with technology, I mean, here we are on Zoom, they can move to places like uh, Wyoming or you have a chapter called Big Sky. And I know that people call Montana that Big Sky. The worry that I would have is that people are going to start filtering into those wonderful areas. I grew up in Colorado. And I've seen the Californication of Colorado politics, and it's not healthy. I went to public schools. I don't know. Did you go to public schools growing up? I did. Yeah. We had great public schools. And did you feel like you had a good public education in Massachusetts? I had a great great public education. Yeah, I didn't feel like it was overly biased one way or the other. We had Democrat... not in the city, not in Denver, <laughs> that's always Democrat, but, but we had, um, we had a mix of people. It wasn't a one party state. Now it's a one party state. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's my worry is that, is that a worry for you? I mean, maybe not for yourself, but your kids, like if people start going to these other areas, uh, big sky kind of states that you call them free states. You, you've called, you've referred to it as America. <laughs> is that a worry? I mean, look at <laughs> Beto. Beto almost beat Ted Cruz in Texas. If you can believe that, even with his rhetoric, I mean, he was only a couple percentage points off. Yeah. I don't know. It's really uh, kind of, I, I don't really feel like commenting on election integrity right now, but uh, yeah, well, there happened. you go. There's another Although point of contact. It was close apparently but who knows yeah uh, as to your sure. question um yeah. sure it's a real question uh you know i suppose you know you could ask liz cheney she, you know she tried to import as many californians as possible into wyoming but not in time um you know it there yeah. is this problem right. you know that people move away from the cities because they become democrat run hellholes then they move to a place that's really nice because there's fresh air and more freedom. And then they want to somehow turn it into the place they just left, but just with different freeways and stuff. So odd. And it's just maybe human nature. And I don't know, maybe it, it is. is concerning, but it's not something I focus on all the time. Uh, yeah. I do want to go back to a couple things though. The, the public school I went to, there was a gun in the public school. Everybody okay. knew that this one particular coach who was a football coach, who was a science teacher, had a gun. He had a revolver in his desk drawer. And, what? Oh, yeah. And everybody Wait, what, knew. What decade was, was this? Hold on. Huh? What decade? What decade was this? I was in high school from 1979 to 1983. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was just ago. a well-known fact that coach so-and-so, Hey, man, if you screw with him too bad, I'll tell you what, he's got a gun in his desk. 
and you know would now how did you know this did what if he was, was not knowledge. there were you able to see common it? knowledge everybody knew that this particular teacher had a gun and then the principal obviously knew and he didn't oh yeah no this was like a, a an allowed thing at the time wow yeah yeah. Wow. No school and, shootings. My guess. There were no schools. We had criminal Fascinating teenagers. We had lots of criminal teenagers, you know, yeah. in our school. We had people who cut class and did drugs and stole things and got in trouble. And some of them were like mini little criminals, you know. And what, what was this coach's name? Do you recall? I, I don't remember. It was too long ago. Um, do you do you care to say the name of the school? I mean, you don't have to, if you don't matter. want to, you don't want to, uh, That's but fine. you know, the, the other thing I want to get back to is, um, when, once you've made the decision to be strong in yourself and to defend yourself, then you're just now talking about which tool you're going to use. And people used to ask me, you know, why do you carry a gun? And my favorite line back was, because bludgeoning is a messy business. That's a good line. That is because a really I'm gonna good fight line. To I'm going to fight to defend my life if I have to bludgeon somebody to death with a, with a blunt instrument, right? Yeah. And this would be disgusting to have to fight to the death with. It is disgusting. Wouldn't I, once I've made that yeah. decision, wouldn't I rather take care of that business from a distance? you know yeah. and then right. you keep in and mind you're safer that, that way anyway too safer and you know and then of course the fact that the the brandishing is 80 percent of defensive gun uses right. nobody wants right. to get shot then you can take it even further like on my defensive handguns i'd like to have a laser on it well one reason <laughs> i have a laser on it is so i have one thing yeah, yeah. that is in addition because if the when the person sees the laser and you see where it's pointed. Yeah. Try to brush it off. It doesn't brush off, right? <laughs> they know it is I'm an extra shot. Holy that is shit. an extra amount of inter information for them to process. Yeah. Yeah. Why not give them a and chance? I don't want to shoot anybody. Yeah. yeah. Right. Give That's them a chance great. to retreat. Give them a I chance really like to go that. somewhere else. Live to tell their story. Maybe they change their path in life. Right. That's great. But if they keep coming. I know for sure I'm going to put a hole where the laser was. That's easy. That's, that's nothing. Yeah. So that's a great you know, idea. I, I really, you know, there are ways to, and if you hold that energy, it, you know, like after I started carrying a gun and I carried a gun every day for about 10 years. What do you uh, carry? Can we ask? Uh, Glock 30, 45 ACP. Um, Although I, I have a couple other guns I'm playing around with, like a Glock 19 with a holographic MOS on it. Um, just as your eyes get older, you can play around with those other technologies. Mm -hmm. But um, I have small hands. And so mm -hmm. the Glock 30, Glock 30 SF fits my hand perfectly. Hmm. It's a super accurate gun. I don't know if you know, it's among the most accurate Glocks. I the did not know that. Has a uh, the the uh, the recoil spring is actually a double spring, and you know you could ask Glock, I suppose, but um, it's a it's an extremely accurate handgun. 
and I'm accurate with it. Um, and so that's the gun I carried. Sometimes in the summer, you know, uh, uh, the snub nose, but mostly always the, uh, the Glock 30. And um, even when open carrying uh, in, a, in a state that allows it, uh, I prefer to never open carry without also conceal carry. Um, you know, have the New York reload, which is slang for a second gun, right? And, um, you know, others could disagree. You know, um, I, like I said, I, I, I heard your podcast, saw some of it with MacGyver. He, he's a big Maverick. dude. Maverick, huh? yeah. Maverick, His name is Maverick. Yeah. Maverick. The guy that put my hat to him. A lot of respect. I liked yeah, his story. Uh, I apologize for missing his name. I'm sure he'll forgive me. I hope so. Uh, I'm sure he will. <laughs> but, but he's a big dude, you know, and he's he a Harley guy with his open carry uh, at a biker event. And I pity the fool to use the slogan who decides to go up to him and relieve him of that firearm, you know? Right, right. But I'm not a big dude. So if I'm carrying right. open because it's a circumstance, I'm out in the field and, you know, open carrying, I'll have a pocket pistol because if I'm out and I'm stopping for gas or something, somebody makes a play for it. You know, the story is not going to be over. It, they're going to be disarmed before they get my gun. Um, and open carry is very tricky that way, you know? Yes, uh, it is. Uh, because uh, more than one person has been relieved of their firearm we don't like to right. talk about it in the gun community but it happens from time to time mm. so uh you know i i prefer concealed carry um i i used to be thinner and i liked inside the waistband now i'm kind of fatter so i prefer outside the waistband i need the extra couple inches of waistband from my own self um <laughs> and um you know, I wanted to also touch on the, the rigmarole and expense. It, the same people, I point this out in my book, you know, the same people spend a lot of energy talking about, and this is somewhat virtue signaling for some, talking <laughs> about, oh, you can't do this, it harms disadvantaged people. Can't do that, it harms economically disadvantaged people. Oh, but you can make it cost four or $500 more for a firearm. Right. For them to exercise their right to protect themselves when some of those disadvantaged people also live in neighborhoods due to circumstances beyond their control that make them more dangerous. Wow. And so you're going to make it so that they have to what? So San Jose has places that are not that nice to be in, but you need insurance yeah. now, right? It's crazy. What's that about? In South Dakota, they don't even think about that. I don't understand. It just totally never comes up unless you well, bring they it up. willfully don't think about it. That's true. They put it in the box of things to not think about. That's right. And when you do that, well, I ask you, how intellectually honest are you being if you're the kind of person who has a box full of things not to think about because it's inconvenient to yeah. the truth that you would like to embody, whether or not it's actual right. truth. Yep. And in South Dakota, when you go in to get your permit, you bring your driver's license. You don't even need one anymore because of constitutional carry. But when I moved there, you needed one uh, <clears throat> for conceal. You go in, you give your license, you fill out the form, you pay $10, and they take your information. They give you back your driver's license. They give you a slip of paper 
that is your concealed carry permit. The presumption is, is you're good to go. Okay. In the event it gets rejected, you'll you get a notice. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. You don't have to tell them what guns you're going to conceal. You don't tell them what yeah. guns. Okay. It's good for any concealed pistol. And it's different state to state, but South Dakota, it was a concealed pistol license, not a concealed weapon license, but it was good for any pistol, which means, hey, a MAC-10 is a pistol. Right. So you can carry your MAC-10 into the bank. You don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. You know, it goes to that joke, which I love gun jokes, right? But you <laughs> must have heard the one where the guy gets pulled over and and uh, the cop says, do you have any guns in the car? He goes, sure, I do. He goes, well, what have you got? He goes, well, there's a 45 on my hip. I got a nine in the glove box and I got an AR in the trunk. He goes, damn, sir, what are you afraid of? He goes, nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I, uh, I'm on the campuses and um, in 2015, there was a mass murder on an Oregon community college. I think it was 2015. And um, the little mailer that the NEA sends out, I don't know if you know that organization, the National Education Association, <clears throat> it's monolithically to the left. Uh, they had a little blurb that I read to my political philosophy students in the fall of 2015. I had, I had a student video record it and it's up. I have, I have the video. That's what, that's how I remember this stuff. Cause I, the older I get, I don't remember what or when, <laughs> but I read the notice to my students and the notice was, it was a, to, I think it was the very last page of that mailer for might have been August or October, I can't remember, uh, of 2015. It was um, suggesting that we use, and uh, in, in these kind of events, that we use a stapler to fight back. And I, and I, I have to, you know, document this because the older I get, the more crazy that sounds. And it sounds like a, someone just made it up, but it's documented. They suggest you use a stapler they say run, hide, and then at the very end, fight if you must. And uh, I don't know, use a stapler, you know. And so I had a stapler with me, and I pointed and I pointed out, and I pointed out to the students in that class at Moorpark College when I walked over to the door that you could not lock the door. Hmm. You could not lock the door. And we suge they suggested that we use a stapler. And this was considered progressive. The, the so-called people, uh, the so-called position of, of the people recommending it were progressives. They would say, I'm progressive. And the, the <laughs> what I love about this anecdote is my students, which are just you know, they're normal California students. They instantly, instantly saw that that was not progressive. Instantly. And I don't know why, but the faculty members can't see that. They couldn't see it until you just read it. You just point it out. And that's what I love about teaching is the hope is not really lost because if you catch the kids at a certain age and, and if you just tell them the truth, they mostly, most of the time they can see it. 
And, what happens uh, though if you just if they fill their hot, uh, you know, their brains with lies? It's right. Well, issue, like you said, reverse, like you, you said know? on the campuses, there's these boxes of things you can't talk about. And uh, I'll I'll give you another anecdote, uh, which might be encouraging. I don't know. It's encouraging to me. And I feel like I need all the encouragement I can get, but um, I got hired to teach, to fill in for a professor at Cal State Fullerton, which is a big state school in Orange County. It's about 15 minutes north of Disneyland. And uh, the class was constitutional law, civil liberties. And the only reason I got this job is because they needed to fill somebody right now. And I had a lady that was my professor for my PhD, write me a, or recommend me on the phone or something. And she's, she's a liberal Democrat and, and her word carried the day easily. So I got hired to teach this class and this is in the spring of 2018. And we had just finished the first amendment. We were just about to start the second amendment when there was a shooting. Uh, and I, I don't like usually using the term shooting uh, for rhetorical reasons, I like to say mass murder because I think it's more accurate. But there, I mean, it's accurate in terms of why we're horrified <laughs> because shooting takes place on sh at shooting ranges. We're not horrified. But um, there's, a, there's mass murder at this Parkland High School, I think it was called in Florida. And it was a huge deal to the students. I mean, it was a huge deal to me too, but the students were really, they, for some reason, there was, uh, I, I saw a higher intensity on social media and it seemed like it was much better organized politically from outside forces coming into Florida to help these kids organize. And we had just started the second amendment. Uh, the timing of this, it's amazing. So. I was at a loss of how to proceed for a few minutes. And I decided to ask the students what their initial take is. And I tr tried to be as objective as possible. I asked how many think that more or how have people say stronger gun laws. <laughs> I hate, I hate that phraseology, but, uh, is that that's the answer 80 percent students raised their hand i counted and i did the math and it was 80 percent so i went full bore into the discussion i had them read heller i had them read mcdonald and i i read the the suggestion that we use a stapler to fight back i noticed i pointed out to them that they can't lock the door. And I had students go over and try to lock the door. Can't lock the door. And I pointed out that there's a law that, that prevents me lawfully as a, I was trained by Navy SEALs and small arms. <laughs> wow. I, I'm prevented lawfully from carrying a firearm for self-defense on this campus. I'm a felon. I'm just as bad if, if I do that as the murderer trying to murder us, because that's a felony too. So I just, I just told the truth. I just told the truth. I just had them read it for themselves. Did the poll again 
a couple weeks later, took a few weeks to get through that material. And it was exactly the opposite. Mm. Nice. And I didn't pull any, I mean, I just, all I did was not pull any punches. I just said, I want you to think about this from, I don't, I'm not, there's nothing off limits to talk about. Let's talk about how you want to talk about how unsafe you are. Okay. Well, I want you to notice the door. Can you lock the door? Well, I, first I honor you for going through that exercise. That's why you're a professor. And, uh, uh, I, I was a little bit of a professor one time, but not <laughs> in the same way. Um, uh, but I've always maintained, and I, I write in my book somewhere, that your brain is your biggest weapon. Yeah. Let's remember that. You do say that. that yeah. We are thinking people. And if it really went bad in that classroom and you all looked around, are there not tables and chairs that could be broken and jammed under that door in different ways to make it not open. Uh, you know, that stapler, if it was this big, well, you could use it, you know, you have to get close. Right. What about the fact that while it takes a lot of guts and a lot of pain, it is a fact that if somebody can get close enough to get their hand over the ejection port on an AR, it will jam up, fact and that gun will be unusable, you know, and the person can be disarmed. Uh, you know, there's weapons everywhere you look. I mean, it sounds like you're a, maybe a Marine, former Marine or something. I, I don't was know. in the Navy, yeah. You're in the Navy. Navy. Uh, but a lot people who have a lot um, more training than me would see it a lot quicker. Okay, I have very little to none, but I, I can apply my brain in right. a way that is analytical and i could walk into any room and if you asked me to i could find lethal weapons everywhere sure you know or make them you know just by breaking apart furniture and getting a sharp piece of metal you're going to be ahead of the game so um you know of course yeah. it's ridiculous that a person can be made into a felon for carrying a firearm to protect their lives if they're on the wrong side of some boundary right some yeah location right and it reminds me of something that i thought about before the interview i wanted to bring up which is okay. um <clears throat> it used to be that uh, i had heard about this that in some eastern european countries uh before they uh changed over they were still under communist rule i had heard i didn't verify but for purposes of the discussion let's assume it's true that the third offense of a drunk driving in this particular country that I, that I was told about uh, brought the death penalty. Wow. And I thought, well, if you're a two-time loser, why wouldn't you be carrying a machine gun and a cop pulls you over? You're going to shoot the cop, right? Because right. Right, right. you're facing certain death otherwise anyway. Yeah. Now, if you back off of that extreme example, which is extreme, uh, let's look at uh, California. I'm not a California gun lawyer, but I have some basic familiarity. And it's my understanding that illegal concealed carry in California is a misdemeanor. I think it's a wobbler. I think it can be charged either way. Okay. I'll defer to you on that. Like I said, I haven't looked it up, but I thought it was a misdemeanor. You do lose your gun rights going forward after that in California, if it happens. Uh, and yet, 
there are other things, right, that are coming to be misdemeanors and felonies, for example. In some places in the world, if you misgender somebody, that's a felony. Wow. Right? That's how it is in, in certain places in Europe. So wow. th there's this sliding scale as some activities are getting criminalized more than other activities, and you get to balance between those activities, right? And there's, uh, uh, I'm sure you've heard this, but there are so many laws on the books that every one of us probably violates three laws a day just by going through yep. your daily life. I've right? heard that. Yeah. It's very well, believable. If this blue resistance gets too crazy, what they don't realize is if they just criminalize a bunch of people to the point where people are saying, I'm a felon because I have a concealed carry permit, but I went over this line and I was on a sidewalk that was next to a sidewalk that was next to a parking lot that was next to a playground. I didn't even know about the playground. All it takes is a few of those cases getting publicized and the average logical mind will say, well, screw it. Why even have a permit? I'm just going to pack a gun. Right. Right. Because it's right. already, what's the point of going and getting the paperwork and getting the background check? Yeah, yeah. If I get caught, it's going to be a misdemeanor. And if I have to defend myself and I don't get caught, that gun's going to disappear. I mean, that's what the logical mind is going to say. Right. They're not going to lay down yeah. and get ground through the system if the system loses its credibility as yep. to the fair uh, application of the rule of law. That's right. So we become so, more corrupt. We could become more like Soviet Union or places like that. You know, it, it, so, 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 you know, to talk to, you know, people who are never going to be listening to this because they're never going to tune into the Republican anything, right. Just from, from sheer closed mindedness. Yeah. But the fact is that, that the warning is to legislators going too far such that they lose their credibility in the minds of the average person right. to give that person less incentive to be a legally compliant person and if they and if the if you have less incentive to be a legally compliant person and more incentive to protect you and your loved ones from violence which is increasing in our society due to a variety of factors it's a no-brainer and that's why you'd be surprised how many people illegally pack a gun around. And they just don't say anything about it to anybody. Yeah. And it's not cool, but it exists like a lot of other things that are not cool and exist. So, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the discussion becomes theoretical. You're a law abiding sure. guy and you're going to not carry a gun in a place that you're not supposed to. But, and there's a slice of people who are just straight up one percenters and they're criminals and they are always gonna carry a gun in a place they're not supposed to. But then there's this huge segment of population that's like the lodestone or the, the, the rudder of the boat, you know? And yeah. they move slowly, right? Back yep. in different ways. But if they come to perceive that their chances are easier to get through a situation where they get caught with a gun illegally than they are getting through a situation where they get caught without a gun, they're going to have a gun.
Mm. And so it's really counterproductive. It is. The blue resistance is counterproductive. It, it's like a self-inflicted wound on integrity of our society. And, and that, you know, you asked me to have insight into why they act like that in New York or, or why did they act like that anywhere? There's a lot of self-righteousness. There's a yeah, lot of that. That's right. But the, and there's no introspection. And so I would say, going back to my thesis, you know, spending a year reading the original Socratic dialogues, right? Like mm. the Apology, the yeah. Credo, uh, the, you know, all those. And, and, and then really thinking about, you know, the way Socrates look at things. And then reading the original gospels and trying to come to an understanding of why brave men and women did what they did out of conscience. It gave me a little bit of self power to retain and reserve to myself, my power to change my mind, right? Mm -hmm. Like as the only person who can change my mind is me. And right. if I'm not willing to even think about it, it's never going to happen. But uh, since I was open to thinking about it in the context of having a child to care for or needing right. to come home to be a dad, because you're a single person, if you don't come home, it's a tragedy to you. But if you're a dad and you don't come home, it's a tragedy to your family that's going to live on in their whole lives. So, um, you know, that means when I leave, when I go anywhere, I've got a gun legally. Okay. I, I'm not a scofflaw, but you know, Supreme court says I have a right to a gun next to my bed where I lay my head. And that's part of my God given right to keep and bear arms and defend my life. So if I'm traveling somewhere, you bet that when I get there, I take that gun. If it's in a place where I'm not allowed to have it locked and loaded, I'm going to, you know, withdraw it from its locked container in a privately rented room or motel room or whatever. I'm going to load it. I'm going to put it where it goes next right. to my bed. Right. And, you know, that's where the joke comes in that the door is there for their protection. The door right. is there for their protection, not mine. Do not cross that transom because yeah. it's all bets off at that point. Yeah. So uh, that's really good. That, that's really insightful background on why, which was the primary thing I was going to try to get out of you, which is how is it that you, began seeing yourself as responsible for your own safety and then being able to see the well good intentioned well-meaning laws and people advocating for that as a hindrance to common sense not actually an expression of common sense but actually a hindrance to common sense retaking responsibility very insightful yeah i i really appreciate you sharing everything with us like this well i don't see how it could be used against me 
I'm not running for public office and I doubt I'll ever be a judge. Um, so I, I would vote for you. <laughs> I would. I'm sure there's a lot of people that would. I'd rather I, I'd rather people get to hear the example. Look, my, my yeah, my interest is getting people in the middle that would never otherwise hear it, and giving them an opportunity to have the kind of infer, internal transformation that you had, without having to go through something traumatic. You know, yeah. in other words, learn. Isn't that the what the definition of wisdom is? Learn from other people. <laughs> It's yeah, like the whole book know, of Proverbs, that the whole book of Proverbs in the Bible is learn from other people. You don't have to go through it, you know. You know, I uh, I, I have a buddy who um, uh, he used to be a uh, you know I used to be a Democrat. I, I'm uh, I'm a Republican. Uh, I used to be a liberal. I'm a conservative. I used to be for gun control, and now I'm not. Um, and I used to be young and now I'm old. I used to be single and now I'm a dad and there's all kinds of things I used to be. Wow. But I, I'm here, I'm me. I'm just who I am, you know? Yeah. And uh, my, my experience has been a, a sum total that I've learned from and I'm still learning from. I don't have every answer. I just know how it is for me and that on these issues, my mind has not changed since I became aware of my own responsibility for my own self, my own protection. It doesn't mean I'm an island. It doesn't mean I can do it, anything, everything by myself. Uh, but it does mean that I'm willing to take responsibility. Like you said, you take responsibility for your own actions. And, you know, perhaps that's right. uh, like a rite of passage that individuals need to go through it sometimes it happens at different ages and sometimes it happens when you're over 30 or over 40 um but it does and will happen and i wanted to point out a, a buddy of mine who used to also be a democrat is now a republican and used to also be liberal and is now conservative and used to be uh against guns and is now a gun owner and a trained licensed California security guard. Hmm. And the reason is he's very religious. He didn't used to be, but he took on uh, his, his, uh, his Jewish faith and Judaism. Okay. And he started attending temples hmm. and, uh, and then, you know, there's been a great rise very sadly in anti-Semitic activity. Yeah. And he, he knew the, the rabbi at that Southern California temple that got shot up, wow. right? Interviewed that guy. And he then joined a licensed security guard company. And he sits for the license and he uh, solely to be an armed security guard during prayer at his temple. Wow. So talk about walking your walk and talking your talk. You know, uh, because he stepped out and 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 is willing to uh, attend as one of the two licensed armed security guards. So he open carries when he's doing it. He trains for it. Uh, and again, he's up to date on his licensing for it. And he he's not he doesn't have a concealed carry. He's probably going to get one now that the Bruin case came down. 
but he was only licensed to carry while performing his duties as a security guard for religious services. And uh, he also happens to be a filmmaker. And so he and his wife wrote a movie that they're currently producing. I have his permission to, to plug it for a second and say okay. what it is. Sure, yeah. But it's called Guns and Moses. Oh, no kidding. Guns and Moses. No, nope. Guns and Moses. That's awesome. It's about, it's about a rabbi who goes through a process like the one I went through. So maybe people go see this movie and they'll see his progression because oh yeah uh one of his uh congregation probably not using the right word in the jewish context but one of his congregation is murdered at at a family wedding that's a religious wedding and and the person is accused this is a fictional story the person is accused is a is a troubled neo-nazi youth but something about the thing makes it doesn't make sense to the rabbi. And even though it would be easy for the rabbi possibly to go along and say, yeah, I'm sure it was that guy who posted hate on the Internet and they have him in custody. He does a little digging and he finds out there's no way that kid could have done that crime. And he becomes a little like Columbo with your tie. You know, he becomes like a sleuth about it. Right. And as he starts to unpack the crime a little bit, he becomes a target for the for, for violence by the people who are really behind it. And he goes to one of his friends who's like an armed security guard in the temple, kinda, and what do you think I should do? He says, what are you kidding me? You need to get a gun. Hmm. And the rabbi's like, oh no, I wouldn't, I don't even wanna touch a gun. So the rabbi's arc starts out in that same mindset, like, I don't need a gun. The police will protect me. And yeah. in different parts of the film, he gets trained. He gets a nine millimeter. He straps it to his hip and he becomes ready for armed self-defense. Wow. As a, as a rabbi sleuth, you know, protagonist in this movie. Oh man. So I think it will be fun. And, you know, at some point you'll see this independent film around guns. And oh Moses. yeah. Yeah. It'll be out in 23 or 24 and the gun control issue will still be with us. Do you mind saying your friend's name? Did he give you permission for that? I'm sure that I can. He, he did. His name is Salvador Litvak, Salvador Litvak and his wife, Nina Litvak are a very awesome couple. And they, uh, they, uh, what's it? How do you spell the last name? L I T V A K. Oh, okay. And, and and they're just brilliant writer uh, uh, collaborators, and he's the director, and they have a producer, and they they've made other feature length films. In fact, um, if you like quirky uh, independent comedies, they made a movie called "When Do We Eat?" about <laughs> Passover. When do we eat? And it's got Jack Klugman in it in his last role before he passed away. Oh, and wow. It's a, a just a wonderful, funny. And he made that film. Movie. Huh? He made that film. Oh, he made that film many years ago. It's available on all the streaming services. You can rent it on Amazon or whatever. Oh. When do we eat? And um, <laughs> and he's so he and his wife have, have created a new feature film, this Guns and Moses. So wow. it's it's got humor. It's got action. 
uh, and it tells this story of this arc of of coming to terms not not to terms, words yeah. used in the book used in my book but not words used in his movie but really everybody has to come to terms yes with their own that's right responsibility like if you're not going to do it in this lifetime then when right coming to terms it's such a powerful title how did you come up with that title well, we Chuck and I were talking about it back and forth when it came time to name the book. Um, and uh, I was driving down the road one day and I, it occurred to me, you know, because th there was a part in the um, there was a the 2015 electronic version of the book that was a little bit different. Um, and at the end of that book, I made a call of action to lawyers to come to terms with this in their lives because lawyers are always responsible for these lawsuits and they're responsible that's true for the laws in the legislature and and being a lawyer and you know calling on my quote tribe if you will of lawyers mm. to you know come to terms with this for themselves and that was in the original version at the end of it and i thought hey what about calling it coming to terms because I'm a lawyer and that's what lawyers do, right? We negotiate back and forth and we come to terms on our agreement or a deal or our contract or whatever. So, you know, and it's also like this other concept of coming to terms with your own vulnerability or coming to terms with your own mistakes or willingness to say I was wrong. That's part of coming to terms, you know? And, right. Uh, and so he liked it and, and we went with it. Oh, wow. I, I, that's really interesting uh connection with your business law background i never even occurred to me that that's the same kind of phraseology that you use in contract negotiation that's that's great it's not only psychological it's business law that's cool yeah and there's lots of layers to this coming to terms you know you say it a few times and uh it's a wonderful book it's what 9.95 it's not very expensive. No, no it, you know, I got to be honest. It's 99 cents on Kindle, on Amazon. Oh, even cheaper. Uh, wow. And so. I don't like, I don't like, uh, I like the hard copy. I don't like getting, I have to have the hard copy. I make notes in the, you know, I check mark things and I have a pencil. Always use a pencil. Yeah. Well, and, I do too. If, if uh, I'm not even sure if Amazon still sells the hard copy, uh, if they don't, people could contact CRPA and okay. uh, or they could, uh, I don't know, perhaps email your show or, e you know. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. But it could be made available. I, I have a bunch of them and I give them away two at a time. And what I'll do is uh, like I'm going to an event uh, in a couple of weeks, which is a uh, for lawyers, a, a, a law firm's putting it together, I know. And and we're going to go do a little bit of trap shooting. And uh, uh, cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's always a good time. A box of these books. And uh, my standard is, is I'll autograph them if they want, but I'll give a, a blank copy too and say, hey, if you like it and you think somebody you know would be interested in what's said in here, give it to them. You know, what worst case, they throw it out, right? I mean, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, do you mind if I ask you one more question? I'm not sure. Uh if this is too personal, but you've mentioned religious faith. Um, 
do you want to say anything about that? Do you have one? Are you in the Jewish tradition still, or I, I am? Uh, uh, I am uh, of great faith for one. Uh, I do uh, have something in my past which I didn't mention. I was almost going to mention it, but I, I will now that you brought it up, which is that I participated in many years of traditional Lakota ceremonies, uh, including the Sundance, which if if you're not aware of it, you could go I check am. out a movie called A Man Called Horse. But, okay. um, you know, it's you, 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 uh, you fast for four days and four nights and you, you do heavy prayer in the hot sun and there are sacrifices made and it's pretty deep and pretty real. Uh, so so real in fact that you can't take pictures of it like that cheapens it and so there's no photos of it um you know the, there's uh there's just what happened to you and sometimes there are flesh offerings and piercings and things like that and it gets really real uh and wow. mystical things happen um and that's uh you know, there's a fortitude that comes through those kinds of experiences, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, when you, when, when you haven't eaten in four days and you haven't had any water in four days, other than the mercy that you you're given in a sweat lodge, uh, wow. you know, your, your ego breaks down and you're just who you are right there. And you're praying and you're praying for mercy and what, and you're praying for others, you know, and, um, you know, it, it, you become at the same time, uh, pathetic and, uh, uh, more than your personality, you become connected to the people you're doing it with, and you become connected to nature in a way that's hard to describe. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when, when you have visions in that kind of state, it's a visionary thing like vision quest and things like that. Uh, you know, there's no forgetting the visions, like, and if the visions come true, uh, in some fashion, there's no forgetting that, you know, and, um, you know, that the, the bros, as, as you would call your, the people you Sundance with, your sisters and your brothers, you know, the, the, they have some sayings like, you know, we're all red on the inside, you know, mm. you know, we're all red on the inside. And, if you come to the altar with a with a clear heart and a good heart and you're invited to go do this thing or you have a vision and you tell the vision to somebody and they say you need to sundance or you have a dream and the dream involves the kind of symbology that gets interpreted and somebody says that and you put it off then you're just putting off the the inevitable you know you just you know so things can come to you in a way that if you're open to them they, they will guide you, you know? And so wow. that's, that was my personal experience and, and it's not, not everyone's, but it is one that, that guides me to know the difference between lies and truth and the difference between real and fiction and the difference between good and, and bad. Um, uh, wow. And I'm just blessed to have had that. And it doesn't mean you can't get wow. it in the Christian faith or the Hindu faith, or the Jewish faith. Um, but the more direct your relationship is with our creator, you know, then 
you're going to get it. Okay. And the more lenses you allow to be put between you and creator, it's going to be harder to get that message. And mm -hmm. so whatever anyone needs to do to get in the most close communication with God, creator, whatever you want to call that awesome, omnipotent, omniscient being that's the fourth flowingness of all life, do right. that, you know, like because <laughs> I think that's why we're here, you know, and are, that's are how there I any uh, are there any other non-ethnically Indian folks? I mean, for people that don't know, Lakota, is that the same as Sioux? Yeah. Okay. So well, the Sioux was the French name. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. I never yeah. knew that. Oh, the, the okay. Sioux, the Sioux were the French is a French name for the Lakota people. Oh, okay. So that's why those tribes. two names are always together. Okay, gotcha. There, there's the Oglala Sioux, for example. There's uh the, oh. you know the the, the Santee Sioux. There's there were seven tribes all together. Um there are other tribes that do Sundance, but it was considered a Lakota tribe. The yeah. word Lakota means ally. Um and it refers to the 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 native people of the Great Plains. Yes, as Great Plains Indians, yeah. And um uh yeah. if you're invited to be part of those ceremonies and you are respectful and open, there's a good chance that you're gonna have some kind of mystical experience. And um, is there any peyote used? I'm no, I mean okay, there are native american ceremonies that involve peyote obviously right but this right. is a very sober kind of ceremony oh. uh and you don't need peyote uh if you've been fasting for four days you know and dancing right. in the hot sun and um wow and the like you know how are you staying hydrated during this time well it sounds like you'd be very dehydrated <laughs> well, or is you, that a you, it's you not get, a priority. You get a cup of water in the sweat lodge, okay. uh, which you get every day, morning and night. So you get a couple cups of water in the sweat lodge. Um, okay. It depends on whose Sundance it is and how. I mean, obviously, you're still alive, so <laughs> you you survive as far as dehydration goes. But yeah, I sounds I, like I, it's I very physically passed taxing. out one time. I did it 13 years, um, wow. and uh, and then I stopped doing it. It's if you if i had a vision or a dream and i had to do it again i would but thankfully i haven't it's not easy um and it's not um it's not for the uh it's it's not something that you take for granted or that you uh engage in frivolously wow. um wow. but it is something that like for example i had a buddy who was invited to dance with a family group of families to to do the Sundance and he asked me to come out as a supporter and I went out one year and I decided I'd like to do that and I didn't just decide by myself I I had some uh some some inkling of it uh, you know in prayer and meditation and then uh I pledged and it was a year of preparation to go do that um and I wow, used to be really? younger wow. and better condition but in order to prepare for it uh you know there's a, a joke among sundancers they say uh, how do you get ready for sundance get ready you know <laughs> that's it you just get ready whatever that is to you 
So wow. I, uh, I was living in Maui at the time and I used to uh, uh, fast uh, in preparation, uh, you know, for, for days at a time, uh, limit my water, dry fast even for a day, run uphill three miles in the hot Maui sun uh, <laughs> in order to get my cardio up and uh, wow. to know where my lines were and to know that I was in good physical condition to do it. And I started um, uh, my first, uh, 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 I was 35, I think, when I, when I first started sun dancing. Um, I, uh, or maybe I was younger, I can't remember now. Let's see, uh, yeah, I was, I was 35. I started in 2000. Um, and I did it for 13 straight years. And then wow. I, I, I got some signals that it would be a good time to retire. Toward the <laughs> end, uh, <clears throat> I did have a few tough days. And uh, there was one day where I basically was about to pass out. And uh, they, you know, people could see that and they took care of me and they cared for me and they, they let me have some water. The idea is not to torture people, but to allow everybody to get to that space that they need to be in. So they're going to be open to receive, you know, some true knowledge from, from a creator. And so that's is there, what I is did. Is there, uh, and you obviously trusted the folks that were running this thing that it was uh, like official, like it's legit, you know, going back historically to the, the traditional practice. Like was well, there a, I, I could see there a high was, rank person there that was from the tribe? Well, it, someone the tribe knows? is just a political entity, so you don't, you know, it's it's made by the uh, Indian. Uh, there's a I think a Indian uh, government act or something of the mid. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah. it, you don't look to the tribal government for spiritual things. You look to the elders and okay. to the people who've right. been carrying the weight of these practices in their own traditions. And then you have to make up your own mind. You know, there's charlatans out there. Um, yeah. But if, if somebody's charging money for it, walk away. They're not <laughs> legit. That's a good, uh, they, you know, money and spiritual things in the Lakota ways don't mix together. You don't, you don't mix money into it. So, so it's kind of an honor to be asked to, if you want to participate in this. It is. Uh, and, uh, like I said, it was, I was blessed wow. to have an opportunity and to learn from it and, uh, to not yeah. think that those ways became, become my ways. I don't own any of it yeah. or anything. Um, but there's a lot of wisdom there that can be shared across cultures, you know, and if yeah. some of that wisdom can help, uh, people and families, uh, and and the and the native people are willing to share it because they see the good in the person, then that's up to them because it's theirs to share. It's it's not mine to take, nor nor did I, nor would I. Um, but I I it was mine to be shared with in the sense that I, they should they offer to share with me. I offered to allow them to share with me and to pray and commune with people in a good way and to respect their traditions, which I did. And, um, you know, just sort of leave it at that. Um, wow. But, but 
that also helps you become um, able to change your mind because you realize that there is something beyond you. And that gives you a little bit more humility to be able to do that. Um, and so it gave me humility. All the uh, experiences that I had in the book that are after um, the shooting, the, ma the mass murder, the right. one California Street <clears throat> incident happened after I was uh, had gone through Sundance. And so uh, they reflect the person that existed after Sundance compared to before. And, and you had done your first Sundance before the murders? No. In San Francisco? What I'm saying is other than those murders, other than right. the, the murders happened in 1993. Right. right? Okay. And then That's we skipped forward to like South Dakota or Seattle. Yeah, or yeah. Hawaii, and all those things in the book that show that I was willing yeah. to change my mind ah, happened okay. to a person who'd already gone through. Yeah several Sundances and, oh, okay. and those Sundances will break you down. Um, I've, I've talked to a lot of military guys who I've Sundance with, who've gone through boot camp and they've gone through combat and they've gone through war and PTSD and hell and back, you know? So you're and, using the term Sundance to mean traumatic event. Is that right? No, I'm using it to refer to the actual ceremony, the actual ceremony. Oh, you so had gone through it. What, is, when is was humbling. your first sun when, when was your first sundance again in the year 2000 oh okay so so you were ready for the sundance because you had been through some stuff so what you're saying i i was ready for yeah. whatever all the reasons are that make a person ready um but i was ready uh you know everything you're the first person i've ever met that's actually done a sundance <laughs> Right, that i well, know about that i know you might about, meet I more say. but uh yeah yeah i've read about know, them i had to read it for my phd we had to do a whole thing on indians we had to indian law yeah uh, no there's a, a there's a, a great substance there yeah constitutional uh, law is filled with it yeah it's a huge issue well that's interesting i i mean that's that's pretty wild that's crazy man it's not crazy in a bad way but it's just like it's blowing my mind <laughs> that you have that experience. Wow. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm just not, you know, an average cat. You're so. a fascinating individual, David Frankel. <laughs> you are, you are from, from Massapequa public schools with a coach that had a gun and the <laughs> no shootings back then to uh amherst college student of uh hadley arcus of all people to nyu law school and uh then to san francisco where you went through this that's a picture of the building right yep to uh seattle and south dakota and hawaii through uh pre-heller to post-heller and now packing heat for yourself, going through sun dances, legit sun dances. Um, I definitely don't think I've ever met anybody quite like you. Um, the book is again 
Coming to Terms by David Frankel, the subtitle, I got to have that in there. A Mass Shooting Survivor's Reckoning with Vulnerability and Self-Protection, published uh, by Cold Law Publications, which is affiliated with Chuck Michelle somehow. And um, we, we, we thank you for coming on there, talking about the book. Well, thank you very much, Lucas. It's been a pleasure and um, perhaps we'll do it again sometime. I would love that. I can't wait to meet this. I have to meet this guy you mentioned that's making this film. I have to meet this guy at some point. So I'll put you in touch by email. That'd be great. Thanks, David. Thank you.